Listen now to The Proof Podcast Season 2, The Murder at the Warehouse. How'd you find out something had happened? My mom called me and said, Lori, the police found a body, and they're pretty sure it's Renee. Right, right away, you thought right Jake. Right away. In my head already, I thought it was Jake. Season 2 of Proof is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. This is a CBC Podcast. God damn. These are, these are, these are black bears. Yeah, they Eat them, huh? Mmm. Good. We used to pick these, make black bear pies. It's 40 years since I picked black bears. 40 years. We're standing at the edge of a gravel laneway, looking out over a knot of trees and vines. The tent top right here is the house that Charles Moore and I was born in. It's a, it's a real small house, no inside bathroom. We had three rooms, a bedroom, mama's room, and the kitchen. Up ahead, in the middle of the bush, with trees growing out of it, a rotting structure with rusty roof mostly detached and bowed over like a bedraggled weeping figure. A mildewed rocking chair, Thomas's mother Maisie's, sinks into the tilted remains of a front porch, almost frozen in time. When I came from Vietnam, 1966, I made it from, from the road to about here. And Mama must have seen me coming. She started running down the hill. Way back up there, called running down the hill. She almost fell. Arms out. I dropped my duffel bag. I took my bag off and threw it down here because I started running towards her. When we embraced each other, she was crying and I was crying. So glad to see each other. I was glad I made it back. From Vietnam. And of course, she was glad that her only son was back alive. I'm proud to be here because nothing happened here but good. Colorado, New York City, Germany, Vietnam, Korea, Panama, Spain. No place I have ever been have ever been able to wipe out the good memories and the bad that I experienced over here. So this is the place that Mama used to sit on the steps, on the porch, and she'd be crying late in the afternoon. I would ask her, what's wrong? She said, well, I'm just hoping Charles Moore walked down the road. So I wouldn't even ask him where he'd been. That's all. You are listening to Someone Knows Something from CBC Original Podcasts. In Season 3, David Ridgen revisits his 2007 documentary, Mississippi Cold Case. Teaming up with Thomas Moore to investigate the murders of his brother, Charles Moore, and Henry D., two 19-year-olds 
who were killed by the Ku Klux Klan in 1964. This is episode six, Reckoning. Now you talk about terror. I think you talk about terror. People have been terrorized all my days. All my days. And a suspicious package was found near federal court where the SEAL trial is going on. It was in the Edison Wampa Hotel where many of the people involved in the SEAL case are staying. Bomb threats, Klansmen, Jesus. It's June 14th, 2007, and we're watching the local news. A hand-delivered package about a foot long was found near my van in the hotel parking garage, loaded up with papers and racial epithets. It was a bomb threat. Police said much of what was written inside targeted the U.S. government, but it didn't stop the trial. Bomb threat over. Thomas and Henry D's sisters are sitting in a room of the Edison Walthall Hotel in Jackson. My brother Charles, you were not a wrong body. While we waited for the jury to reach a verdict on the James Ford Seal trial, Thomas made use of his nervous energy to work out a statement that he wanted to read. And you had never been forgotten. We got you Charles Moore with my brother. Amen. That's good. Man, that's that's the good remarks. Both the families of Henry D. and Charles Moore seemed confident that Seal would be found guilty. And I'd like to think the same, but anything can happen. The case hinged on the testimony of former Klansman turned church deacon Charles Marcus Edwards. It was astonishing testimony, but would the jury believe it? We wouldn't have to wait much longer to find out. Hello? Thomas? Yeah. Okay, there's a verdict. Come over as fast as you can. Okay. Come on. Come on, come on, Tell on y'all. To me, a quick verdict means you get the verdict. There's a little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine On June 14th, 2007, at 6.30pm, James Ford Seal was convicted by unanimous decision on charges of conspiracy and two counts of kidnapping where the victims were not released alive. Remember what Johnny Cash said that you gonna what is it, God gonna cut you down. You gonna run but you can't hide. One of SEAL's attorneys, a man by the name of George Lucas, wasn't happy with the jury's decision. We're very disappointed with the verdict. We expect to appeal. What did this case come down to to you guys? I think the credibility of uh, Charles Edwards. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so you guys said you will appeal? Without doubt. Those appeals would eventually be exhausted and Seal would remain in prison. He was given three concurrent life sentences 
to be served out at the federal penitentiary at Terre Haute, Indiana. How was your client? How was your client? He's very disappointed as well. James Ford Seal would serve four years of his three life sentences, then die in prison on August 2, 2011, at the age of 76. What's your reaction right now, if you can, Ms. Collins? Well, I thank the Lord that we got justice. And one time I thought I had to give up because I had got sick coming so much. But I held out. All right, Mr. Moore, just real quick, just your reaction. As I stand here today, I am satisfied that what we did is caused the verdict to be run today as guilty. There's no doubt in my mind. When David and I came down here and woke up some ghosts, shook the bushes, were called troublemaker, but we never fear. So I want everybody, I want the world to see that it took a little old black guy that came from this little old regular place to Franklin County. <laughs> on Charles Moore grave, there was a sign, there was a thing that mama had put on there where he said, anywhere in glory. I can imagine right now him and Henry did probably walking around rejoicing. Are you? I am. For their sake. You're rejoicing. I'm rejoicing for justice in this country, but the joy has been coming a long time. Co-lead prosecutor Paige Fitzgerald, who was instrumental to the success of the case, wouldn't speak on record during the proceedings. Hey Paige, maybe you can give me a quote now. It's all over. Um, we're just very, very, very pleased that the jury was able to reach a verdict on this case and come back and render some justice um, for the families in this case. It's been a long, long time coming, but the wheels of justice may have grinded slowly in this case. They finally, finally reached where they needed to be. Good job. Thanks, Dave. Is this one of the last civil rights cases we're going to see in, in Mississippi? They will become, obviously, fewer and fewer. It was just a remarkable set of circumstances uh, that we were able to, to pursue this case. The Mississippi has made huge strides, lots and lots of progress. And lots I got a final stop to make before I get out of here. And me and Charles Moore going to have a few words. Mom, I want her to be resting in peace that her son came back. Before Thomas returned to Colorado and I returned to Canada, we drove the now familiar road from Jackson down to Meadville. Like Thomas said, our multiple returns to Franklin County had stirred up some ghosts. But can they ever be truly laid to rest? And maybe they shouldn't be. We return to the Meadville Cemetery where Thomas's mother, father, and brother Charles are buried. Well, I guess I'm gonna have to address my dad at first, uh, since I I never had an opportunity to, to know him. Dad, I think you'll be proud of me today, what I try to do. I was probably about two and a half years old when you died. But you left two boys. We lived 18 years, 19 years together. 
Mama did a good job. I think you'll be proud of that. So I hope you're proud of what I did. I'll see you on the other side. And Mama, for you, I wish you were here today. I wish you were here today to witness what I had a part of doing. I want to thank you for what you did for me. The love, the care, pushing me to be somebody. And two, I will see you on the other side. Today I'm going to address you as Mr. Charles Eddie Moore. I always wanted to do something to revenge your death. I want to kill people. I want to hurt people. My mama's word kept me focused and eventually changed my way of thinking. You know I know you know. But now the whole world know who Charles Moore is. I thought about the pain, I thought about you crying, I thought about you hollering, I thought, thought about how you probably wished that I was there. You know, they said that you were forgotten, a forgotten body. But I guarantee you today, you're not forgotten. I still love you. And I'm always missing. So brother, you take care. I'll see you on the high ground. So long. In June 2007, mere days after the SEAL verdict was handed down, U.S. Attorney Dunn Lampton was in a Jeep accident at his Muscadine grape farm, which left him partially paralyzed, the results of a severely bruised spinal cord. Dunn never fully healed from this injury. In 2009, it forced him into retirement, and on August 17, 2011, Dunn Lampton, the man that Thomas and I thought of as a sort of mirthful, swaggering Wyatt Earp, passed away. He was just 60 years old. What do you think of all this, Owen? Well, it's... it's sad. I... I wish I could have... I wish we could have gotten a... Bit more together for the, for a memorial, but uh, I suppose I suppose as long as we remember them. Back at Parker's Landing, Mississippi, in 2017, with my son. I've lived and breathed the Dean Moore case for 13 years, most of his life. He's been dragged through Mississippi many times, knows the case well, and has met many of the people involved, including Charles Marcus Edwards. But this is the first time he's visited what Thomas and I call the kill site. Do you think they would have been happy to see, uh, to see the flowers you put up for them? Oh, I'm sure. I just wish I could have met them. Me too. It's less creepy here now than it was at the beginning, but uh, I still feel creeped out down here. It's a lovely place. 
Lots of egrets, lovely wildlife, all sorts of beautiful natural wonders. God, you sound like me. Thomas and I have stayed in close touch in all the years that followed, speaking on the phone at least once a week, if not every day. But you would never have that opportunity to do work like you and I did because it was a one-time affair. But it was clear throughout that something still felt unfinished, perhaps unanswered. So in 2011, we decided that it was time to make one more trip down south together. We're going to Mewa, Mississippi, my old hometown, Main Street of Mewa. It looked the same to me, other than a couple of stores that have been restored. I don't really know how much the citizens in Meville have changed, uh, want to change, I don't know. La, 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 la. I don't know who I'm going to get to cut this damn grass. During our visit, we upgrade and repair the memorial that Thomas and I had set up across from the Tasty Freeze, where Dean Moore had been picked up. Dave, I, what we're gonna, I think what we need to do is repair this sign permanently. The pictures has only been up there for about a year and they already faded. Thomas and I found the only known photo of Henry D. just before the trial. It had been placed in an old yearbook by one of his Franklin County friends. Now, Moore and Dee's photos are etched into this memorial. This is for you, Franklin County, and other parts of the world. There is still a lot of unjust going on in this country. Whether you're in Colorado, Chicago, it doesn't matter. As you drive by this, this is to remind everyone as to what happened on the 2nd of May, 1964. Yep. Good job. Mission complete. Not much seemed to have changed physically in Meadville since 2007. I asked a few people what they thought four years after the SEAL conviction. I met this man wearing a Hawaiian-style shirt in a Brookhaven, Mississippi parking lot. Yeah, it's really amazing. You know, my wife and I um, have watched the documentary several times, and uh, we're both amazed by the fact that we had never heard of these murders. Um, it's inspiring to see a man such as Mr. Moore um, stand up and fight for his family. And another man in Roxy. One of the impacts of Mr. Seal going to trial was we were able to see, the country at large was able to see some of the atrocities uh, that took place in Mississippi during the 60s. And this young woman in Meadville. I was extremely grateful. That my, was my first reaction, was thank you, Jesus, because I felt it was overdue. Mm-hmm. And um, it was time for all his skeletons to be revealed and him to answer for the things that he had done. And uh, I, I commend you for the documentary, and also I commend the justice system for doing the right thing this time. You know, primarily is the same. I mean, 
they still have this sense of superiority over us. And I don't think that'll ever go away. I don't know if that spirit lingers here or what, but I don't think that'll ever go away. Not here in the South, not this deep South. <laughs> and the local newspaper, the Franklin Advocate, was still going. It hadn't changed much either. Mary Lou, hold on a minute. That's you right there. You all for today? Franklin Advocate owner and editor Mary Lou Webb is the woman who wrote an editorial against reopening the case and told us that pursuing it was like beating a dead dog. We wanted to return a photo we had borrowed from her, but Thomas also wanted to ask a few questions about a continued lack of coverage in the paper of his brother's case. The discussion quickly digressed. Well, I'm just saying you're back. I'm just saying you're back. Because he was a good man and he was I'm not attacking your husband. All right. I'm just saying that Franklin Advocate, the two weeks. Look. Prior to. Let me tell you something. What you need to do now? You need to take that chip off your shoulder and get on. I ain't got no chip. Yes, you have. The Franklin Advocate didn't report on Dean Moore being missing, but did publish something shortly after their bodies were discovered. The article quotes a false story from Sheriff Wayne Hutto that Dean Moore had been in Louisiana visiting relatives. I am champion for the people, not just for one guy who's still got something going. No. Mary Lou's husband, David Webb, now deceased, is listed as being the publicity director for the Americans for the Preservation of the White Race on a July 1964 information sheet I found. The APWR helped support the Ku Klux Klan and also attempted to establish whites-only private schools in Adams and neighboring counties. The Franklin Advocate also regularly featured mentions about the APWR on their front page. The baby's been born now. It's been in the birth canal with Thomas for 40 years, but it's been born now. Let that baby lead a good life and shut up and go on and let's all try to live together. The enemy is not here, it's overseas. Pretty sure this is the house. When in Mississippi, it's not such a long journey to visit an old friend in Louisiana, Henry D's sister, Thelma. There's Thelma. Hey, Thelma. Nice to see you. Oh, this David? It's David. Oh, man, I didn't know who you were. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. It's so good to see you again. Oh, man, Lord, how much and glad to see you, too. I had been asking Thomas about you, and uh, he would tell me you was all right. And uh, every time me and him talk, we talk about you. I keep up to date on you through Thomas, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in just talking to you about what's been going on in your life and how things have gone for you in the last years and since the trial and all that and well I ain't gonna say I've been feeling the best you know I, the case was good but sometimes the problem will come back you know but it pays over just one of them things now and then I kind of shit or tear then that's you know going back 
Charlie, forget it. Because I guess, I mean, we have justice. We have Seal. Mr. Seal was in jail. He died in jail. But it doesn't, obviously, it doesn't negate those horrible things and yeah. the, the loss of Henry. But mother don't know the day that he passed. Icy Finn still doesn't know. She don't know the day we hadn't told her. Henry and Thelma's mother, Isifine, has resided in a psychiatric hospital since the 1940s and will likely never be told of her son Henry's murder. Then I asked him to don't tell her because she was already sick. Yeah. And I told him, I said, whatever y'all do, don't tell ma'am. I said, because she got enough, you know. Yeah, yeah. And she don't know it. How's she doing? She doing fine. Mama doing better than me, tell you the truth. She just old and everything, but she gets around good and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you think, I've always wanted to ask you this, what did you think about when Thomas and I started looking into this case? Well, I was happy because I didn't know what to do. I'm going to tell you. All I know to do was just worry. And before y'all got this case started, my brother used to visit me with an angel. I ain't told nobody this before you. I'm telling this. He used to come to me on an angel. And I'd be asleep, but he would be on that angel all the time, playing with me. And uh, it would worry me a lot, you know. But I could see my brother in the water and stuff, but I didn't know who it was. I could see that. I could see it in different dreams I'd have, but I didn't know where it was. But after that trial, my brother stopped coming to visit me on that angel. So it must have quieted him down, or he must have been satisfied. Because I hadn't seen that angel since. And that's kind of odd. I often wonder, I say, well, I often say to myself, that must have been why he kept visiting me like that. Had to be. Did you ever find any more pictures of Henry, by the way? Because we found that one. Did you ever find any more pictures? I did get no more pictures of him. No. Have you ever given more thought to when Charles Edwards asked for forgiveness and you and Thomas went to talk to him and accepted his his, his apology and his offer f- for forgiveness. Have you ever thought about Charles Edwards since the trial? Yeah. I believe he meant it. I believe if he could do it over, he wouldn't do it no more. I don't believe he would be involved in that kind of stuff. But I believe that he meant what he said. I do. (laughs) Thomas was somewhat less certain, and I think this is at the root of why we came down here, to see Edwards again. When he asked my forgiveness, that opened up that little tiny door for me to walk right on through and leave the chains of pain behind me. 
the guilt, the frustration. That, that when I walk through that door, it releases me. Now, if he lying, then that's him and his God got to worry about that. In 2007, Thomas had been surprised and moved by Edward's courtroom apology, but by 2011, he was interested in having a more in-depth conversation with the former clansman turned Baptist church deacon. What we're going to do this morning is talk to Charles Marcus Edwards. There's some questions we want to ask him. Finishing up a conversation. We would try to visit Edwards one more time at his home just off the Bunkley Road. Grand Lane? Ain't that it? Yeah, that's it. There were still gaps in the story of what went on that day in 1964. Gaps that could only be filled in by the one living man who was there. Boston recorded emergency 510. My wife's been shot, I've been shot. One of the most sensational stories in Boston's history, a white suburban couple shot in the heart of the city, followed by a massive manhunt for the black man who did it. Now the chase is on. You can't make this shit up. Oh, but they did make it up. This is a true story. Boston Globe and HBO Documentary Films present Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Chuck and Carol Stewart shoot. Listen to Murder in Boston on your favorite podcast app. So here we're going down to this guy's house. He done isolated himself way down here in the community. I guess he just didn't want to be around nobody after all that shit. His old truck there, so he's, he's, he's at home now. Remember to park up by the mailbox. Fucking dog coming out of that bar. C.M. Edwards. The first time we were here, Edwards angrily ordered me off his property, crowbar in hand. Thomas had stayed in the van, filled with anxiety. How would both men react this time around, five years later? There he is out there. Okay, well, let's go, man. Hey, fella. Mr. Edwards. Charles Edwards was in white shorts and a t-shirt with a green camel hunting cap. Despite it being early in the morning, Edwards was already up and at work on the floor of a small aluminum fishing boat. How you doing? Talking to you. Come see you. How you doing? Can we go sit down somewhere? We head over to a brown wooden swinging chair in the breezeway of Edward's parking garage, and the two men take a seat. The original dog I met the first time I came is nowhere in sight, but a smaller dog that looks to be a Jack Russell Terrier jumps up onto Edward's lap. It's something that I always want to do. Yeah. I just wanted to just, you know, we, we both, you, you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but when you stood up in the court and asked for forgiveness, that, that, that gave me an avenue. Yeah, right. Oh, man, I hated you, dude. I'm going to tell you flat out. I said, I'm, I'm going to get him, you know. I, I just, and I, and, I, and I didn't even know you. I was sincere when I asked you and uh, Miss Dees to forgive me too, you know. And, and we believe that. I seen yeah. her yesterday. We talk every week. We, we kind of like accepted each other, brother and sister. Yeah. As tragic and bad as this was, it, it, 
It was a God thing. I looked at that too, and, and I said, if probably if this tragedy hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been back here, and I came back here at home and helped build a church here mm -hmm. and helped all that. It's the way life is. It, God's in control of our well, lives if we belong to Him. For me, you know, that was the child more of my only brother. Yeah. And we were raised without a dad. I'm gonna tell you for a surety, I, your mother, I, I cried a many night wondering how she felt about knowing that her son wasn't gonna come back. I, I, and I'm gonna tell you another thing for a surety, if I knew that was gonna turn out like it did, I'd have never been part of it. I wouldn't have, but they they sort of conned me into that, telling me that them people had rifles and machine guns and everything else, you know. That, mm. but, Did you think he was just going to be something, just a confrontation? Yeah, and I, a little what, up and, I didn't deny being a member of the clan. I, mm -hmm. I didn't deny that. But what they had said about that was that we'd pick these up and, and question him about and I, I thought that was all that going to be mm. to it, you know. I didn't know. But James Seals means all guns, fella, I'm going to tell you. He means. Yeah, I know. But your brother, he was just a victim of circumstances. Yeah, he though. told me that. Well, let me ask you about that now. I guess they had identified D because he was running in and out of Chicago with yeah. his other sister up there. And he had that hair thing. Yeah, he had that hair thing. Yeah. He, he was identified, you know, maybe as a, yeah. as a black Muslim. Yeah. Him in and out of Chicago and back home, you know, we, he, he was one of the people that was sort of looking at about mm. the gun running deal. Mm. See if he could have any connections up there and down here, but yeah. wasn't nothing to it. No. D was a good fella. He was, he wasn't rowdy. You know, he, I, I, I knew him. I mean, yeah. I picked him up. And, yeah. He rode to town with me several times yeah. from down on Kirby. See, I think. I try to think that the shock and, and that they was on the, uh, how bad they were beating up, I don't know, but just the fact that I know. Well, they, they, they got a pretty good whooping, but I, they were no word near death or nothing like that. I mean, they were, they were good and alive when they left there with them and took them back down to seal the place down there. After that happened, how long did you hang around with them crazy Joe? How, how long did you? That just about ended it. Oh, yeah. But the FBI done got really involved in all that stuff. And I got the shock of my life when I found out that over half of the people that was in the Klan was informers. They had more informers than we did at regular meeting than the FBI did. It, it just went on and on, you know, the top people they had informers and they knew more about what was going on than I did probably. After that it wasn't very many meetings that I ever went to. I, mm. It hurt my family, it hurt, hurt my wife, you know. And over. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever think about what if that had happened to my son? Well sure I did. And I, I wondered, you know, I wondered. I had four boys and I yeah. wondered, I said, what if some of them people might retaliate and take one of my sons, you know, and I, I wondered about that. Edwards feared retaliation by the African-American community, but 
he goes on to talk about retaliation from a different source. You know, God worked in mysterious ways, and my oldest son was, he was some kind of athlete, mm -hmm. and a good Christian boy never raised his mouth, and one evening I went to work, and I'd borrowed a gun from my Uncle Robert down here to let my third boy have a gun to hunt with, and they came back from rabbit hunting, he was sitting there by the by the bathtub in, in the bathroom, and that boy come by there and pulled him with that gun and shot him. Well, killed him. An accident. His oldest son killed by another boy using Edward's own gun in his own home. And I felt like this. I felt like, you know, God might have got even with me. That was after that. It, it was, was my part in this. Uh, Finest boy I ever knew, you know. He was he was a Christian boy. When did that happen? That happened in 1973. He was 14 years old, 14 and a half years old. Eventually, the conversation moves from Edward's family tragedy back to Thomas's. James Seals is in jail because of the consequences that he did. You know, and I, I got the feel, I got that feeling too, you know, that maybe I should have been in there too. But that wasn't part of God's plan no. in my life, no. you know, and mm. so I didn't go. We went seeing Seal, me and David. We went by his place in 2005, and I called him out from, from that road. I wasn't going down there because I feared he'd shoot me. He would have. I know, because see, we <laughs> called him out, he ran in. I thought, oh, I can't go down there because <laughs> He couldn't hit me with no pistol from where I was at. But I, he going to get that dog on rifle. We didn't, I never seen those FBI fives until 2005. Never seen them. And we knew, as we read those five, me and David, that he was in Canada, I was in Colorado Springs, we were talking two or three times a day. And we said if we could get to one of you guys and confront it, one of them, maybe turn against the other guy. That was the only way that that, that was going to be. That's the only way it would have happened because I wouldn't have. No, no. It, but he had the opportunity to do just what you did. Oh, uh, you reckon? Yeah, well, we went to him first. We didn't, I mean, we went to his place. We didn't come to see you until 2006, one year later, because I didn't have the nerve to come talk to you. I said, now, what if I go up there and you were like, nigga, get off my plate. What am I going to do? What, how, how am I going to respond to that? So I, me and David rode by here a couple of times. I said, no, I'm not going in there. That was in 2005. I'll offer y'all a cup of coffee if you want. Dave, you want a cup of coffee? Uh, I'll have a cup of coffee, sir. I see you got pieces and... I got all kind of fruit, man. I got more pears and peaches and stuff than I'll ever do anything. I want a cup of pizza for a leave. Okay, I don't want anything in your cup. No, I'll no. have a bit of milk, please. Edwards invites me inside to make some coffee, while Thomas heads outside to check out the garden. It's still early in the morning and Edwards' wife Betty, dark-haired with glasses and a light dress, is just waking up. I'm standing in his kitchen, watching Edwards make me coffee. What you doing? I'm just talking to more and this other guy in. Come sit at the table if you want to. Where'd he go off to? Got there hunting him a peach, I imagine. He can get all of them he wants. 
We walk back outside with coffees in hand, a pastoral scene that would have been unimaginable just five years before, and head for the garden in search of Thomas. Hey Dave, where'd y'all go? You get your song? Uh, yeah, I went and got me one of your pictures. There you go. Oh, thanks, bro. Let me ask you something. It's about 931. We've been here all, almost an hour. What does this talking that you and I are doing today do for you today? Well, that you know we can be friends. Yeah. That's, that's for me, it's a completion. I have no more. There's nothing else that I want to do on this case. I want to be able to, and I have put it all behind, so. Do you remember the first time I came? With, Thomas was in the van, and I said, do you want, he just wants to talk to you, and you told me to get out of here? Yeah. What did you think at, at that time? What, what at that it? time? Well, I never made no kind of confession or nothing, and I don't know. I just didn't want to be bothered with it, you know what? Yeah. I wasn't going to confess to nobody because I denied this for for years when people would ask me about it. But I, what I really denied was taking part in really putting those boys to death. That's what I didn't deny. And people didn't ask me did I have part in it. What they asked me was, did you kill those boys? I still want to know what happened in the woods. Well, it, I reckon you could say it cursed myself. We, we did the little strapping that went on. James Seals said that he held a gun on those guys. And uh, that's the reason I said that they wouldn't really be as bad as people made out like they were. But Curtis left there with James and wherever they went. But Curtis didn't go to the river with them, I don't. Because he was back that night at the Klan meeting. So what happened at the clan meetings? Well, it was just like any other business. <laughs> you uh, it wasn't always all against black too. They they done some good things. They tore some white people's butts up that wouldn't work and support their family. They got them and Why they never get them, give them a good whooping, you know, and they But that's what it's all about. I told uh, uh, what, what was the lady uh, prosecutor's name up there? Page. Page. Huh? Page Fitzgerald. Miss Miss Fitzgerald. I told her. I said, Miss Fitzgerald, I'm not a hypocrite. Now that's one thing you. And I said, I have nothing against any black person. I don't hold anything against them. But I, the only thing I said, they ought to have good jobs, and a good home, and everything. But the one thing, and I, I'm, I'm not a hypocrite now, I don't believe in intermarriage. I don't believe in that. And I, and I tell you that, too. Yeah. I mean, but I said I've worked with them and I've trained with them and I've invited them to my house and they eat at my table and whatever, I said. But that's the one thing that I still have a problem with and maybe someday I'll overcome that. I think that's the problem with that because the, the reason is because you know it might not be in, in Colorado or wherever you're at now, but when you uh, when they, and I got a niece right up the road here, 
married to a black guy, and she's got two kids. Well, they they really don't fit in with the whites or the blacks, you know, as far as social stuff, not going to school. As an observer, I stay silent, reflecting on how some things have not changed. So what about your, uh, how your community feel? But when we went up there and I testified and I come back, and on Sunday morning when I got up to teach my Sunday school class and or during church service when they had an announcement, I stood and I told them. I said, y'all know who I am and what I've done now. And I said, I'll give up my Sunday school class and I'll give up my deaconship. Anything y'all want me to give up, but I won't give my church up. I'm going to still come to church and serve God. I said, I've done what I thought was right. And then y'all can do whatever y'all think's right mm. about it. Mm. Well, the other deacon stood up and said, Charles, we can't, we can't do nothing but accept you and accept your apology, and we want you to keep teaching Sunday school and and still be the chairman of the deacons. And I said, well, if that's what y'all want, now you be sure. I tell you what, and I look back at the day that y'all came to church up there, and I thought about it a, a thousand times since then. Why didn't I just ask them people to come on in church with me? That would have been the proper thing for me to do. You'd be welcome if you come out to serve God. Yeah. Well, but if you come out to stir up a racket, oh, no. you wouldn't be welcome I, at all. I, I think you know that that's passed yeah. on me. I, but you'd be welcome to come. What time is your church service on Sunday? The service, the, the service is at 11 o'clock. Okay. If you want to come, you come. Yeah. I think, I think you and I sitting up in church is going to be a testimony for all people. Okay. And then Thomas and Edwards walk back into the garden to pick some more fruit and vegetables together. Yeah, let me get, what about, you ain't got no tomatoes? I see a couple laying right there. You ain't got no tomatoes going? I love them things, get some salt and pepper. Let me see if I can Come on, Dave. These are younger. Yeah, I got five, that's good enough. We gather Thomas's pile of peaches and tomatoes and get ready to leave. So we'll be down there, we'll meet you at the church. Okay. Good seeing you, fella. I, I remember those words we said, y'all get off of here now, go on. <laughs> you take care of yourself. All right, so we'll see you Sunday. Okay. Dave, you got, no, I got the key. And so, the following Sunday, we made our way to the Bunkley Baptist Church. Morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. We're proud to have Dave and Brother Thomas with us here today. Yes, sir. Uh, Y'all just feeling at home. Like, like I told Dave a while ago, we're pretty informal, so. That's good. Thank you. I like that. Thomas and Edward sit together near the front of the congregation, while the pastor dressed in Sunday best stands at the front. I'm an atheist, but I grab a hymn book too. Let's turn in our hymn book to number 634. I guess the one day of the year when we sing patriotic songs, we ought to sing them probably more often. No tomorrow, my birthday. Six thirty four. 
the 4th of July is my birthday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going and there, in Bunkley Baptist Church, at its inception a whites-only church that James Ford Seal himself and other clansmen from Bunkley community helped to build, Thomas Moore and Charles Marcus Edwards sang together. I have many people to thank for both leading to and making this documentary happen. To see the list, go to our website at cbc.ca sks. But no other person need be thanked more than Thomas Moore. You have been listening to Episode 6 reckoning. Visit cbc.ca slash sks to watch David's 2011 documentary, Reconciliation in Mississippi. And subscribe to SKS on your favorite podcast app. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by David Ridgen. The series is also produced by Chris Oak, Steph Kampf, Amal Dulich, Eunice Kim, and executive producer Arif Nurani and mixed by Cecil Fernandez. Our theme song is Terrorized by Willie King. Now you talk about terror. I think you talk about terror. People have been terrorized all my days. Oh, all my days. I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord until I die. I will trust. In the Lord, I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord until I die. That's what I'm going to do. That is my theme song for the rest of my life. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.